I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5 and verse 22. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 22. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And our subject is access to God. And hopefully, time permitting, we shall come through the healing of the daughter of Jairus and just into the beginning of Mark chapter 6, which is the begins with the Saviour's second return visit to Nazareth and his reception there. But back to verse 22 of Mark 5, access to God. Now, access to God begins always with a sense of need. And we won't be dealing with that so much as those things that immediately arise out of it. A sense of need in the case of the ruler of the synagogue, one of the rulers of the synagogue, His need was the uh, dying state of his 12-year-old daughter. That was his desperate need. And it woke him up. The uh, problem, the situation was so grave, he knew there was no hope for the girl except the hope that presented itself with Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, said to be the Messiah, who worked in this very city, Capernaum, such mighty miracles, and who spoke so wonderfully and amazingly. He is surely the promised Messiah. And it focused his mind and woke him up. The desperate need made him realize it was no use at all going to the priests to whom he had familiar access. It was no good engaging in some ritual, even of the uh, God-given worship of the Jews in olden times. That would not cure his daughter. Only this Messiah, this prophet of God, could help him. So it was a great need that woke him up. And so it is always. What brings us to God? Not an inner impulse not an inner desire. We do not one day say, well, how do I account for this world? It must be a created world. There must be a God. He must be a personal God if he made personal human beings. He must, in a larger and more magnificent way, be personal and approachable and capable of being communicated with. And I must have him and know him We do not think of these things by ourselves. We do not reason in a reasonable way and a sensible way because we're averse to God and we want to be our own rulers and masters and we are corrupted by our sin within 
and we live for this world and material things. And we quickly learn to scorn the living God. And we do not seek him until a great need comes upon us. And that shakes us. Sometimes it's a physical need, like a terrible illness or a great shock or time of grief. Sometimes the need goes directly to the soul. And by an illuminating, awakening act of God, we become deeply concerned about our spiritual condition and state. It's a divine act to shake us and wake us up. It always starts with a need. No need, no seeking after God, no spiritual waking up, whether it comes via some material circumstance at first or whether it comes to a direct challenge to the mind and to the soul. Well, that's taken for granted. But what are the other stages that are reflected in this Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, to come to Christ and to seek help for his daughter? Because though it's a literal miracle, like all the miracles, it also gives a picture of how God acts spiritually towards us. Behold, see, indicating something significant is to happen. There cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus. And when he saw Christ, he fell at his feet. Matthew's gospel said that he kneeled. Luke says with Mark, fell at his feet. Same thing. He fell before him and probably initially was prostrate on the ground and then kneeled. Well, that's a mighty thing for him to do. He's a man of dignity. He's not a priest, but he is a lay ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. So he'll be a man of means, a man of dignity, but he isn't afraid, even publicly, with onlookers, to fall at the feet of Christ. Though Christ is criticised, though he's insulted by the priests and the rulers, yet this man isn't ashamed to worship him. Because he's, though he's got a great need, it's driven him to recognise Christ, who he is. He must be the promised Messiah. No other could do these miracles. No other could teach as he teaches. No other could be, have his deportment and his bearing. And look at him. He's clothed as a simple, ordinary person. And yet he's a teacher. And he's got followers. And a great number of disciples. And crowds attend him. He could make a fortune. Like the Greek philosophers. Like the well-known religious teachers of Israel. He could be rich. He collects no money for himself. He has no home. He has no riches. This is astonishing. He's just what the Old Testament predicted and prophesied. And he must be the saviour. So need gives way to recognition. And so it is with us. 
we recognize who Christ is. We never saw it before, but this is special. He is different. He is not only man, he is God. He's far above the greatest mortals who ever lived. He has the power and the knowledge and the holiness. He is God. He is the Savior. Of course, we know so much more than Jairus, the rule of the synagogue. We know how he went to Calvary's cross and suffered and died. And we have the biblical explanation. Indeed, it starts in prophecy with Isaiah 700 years before, saying he suffered and died for our sins. He atoned for those who believe in him. He paid the price God the Father put upon him all the punishment that we so richly deserved. And he suffered and paid for it and bore it away. He is the saviour of the world. I come to recognise who he is. And I do what Jairus did. I fall before him, not physically necessarily, but metaphorically I fall spiritually and I humble myself and I call out to him, I am the sinner who needs saving. I repent of my sin and I call upon thee, O Lord, for life, for conversion, for heaven, for a new beginning. It's all reflected in the miracle here. When he saw him, he fell at his feet, recognition of who he was. You cannot be converted without realizing who Christ is and being lost in awe and wonder that he, who is a member of the Godhead, second person of the Trinity, should come down to earth and assume a body for a worm like me to suffer in my place. I see him. I recognize him. I worship him. And verse 23, Jairus besought him greatly, saying, and this is about faith, faith is born in him because of his need and because he recognizes who Christ is, then faith is born within him. It's not big faith, not at first, but it's all there. Like a baby, newborn, or an infant, learning to crawl and to walk. He's all there. She's all there. All fingers, all toes, all limbs, a complete and entire human being, but only small and undeveloped and not full grown. And that's the way faith is born in the heart of a person. It's real faith. It's genuine. It may be small, and the faith of Jairus was small at first, but don't you see, it was valid. It was authentic. So it appropriated 
or secured salvation for him, besought him greatly, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. It's real faith. He trusted Christ. But it's not big, because he thinks that Christ must be present in order to do this. Come, come. He almost, you can hear him saying, come quickly, she's dying. Each breath is fainter than the preceding one. Come quickly, you must be there. It's real faith, but isn't very big. Because he sees in Christ God, but he still thinks he must be there as though he's but a man. And he must do something. He can't just say, be healed. He must lay his hands on him. He must perform some recognized rites in order for the power to flow. So it secured salvation. It was real faith, even though it was not mature and full-grown. And that's a help to us. A real sense of need. I need to be saved. Leads to recognition of Christ. I see he's the Saviour who suffered and died for sinners who come to him. And faith is born. Yes, but pastor, I have doubts and problems and fears. Yes, but if you've got genuine faith, you can come to him. If you trust that he'll save your soul and that he suffered and died for sinners, you can come. Sort out all the other things as you come or afterwards, as long as it's real and you humble yourself before him. It's faith that saves. And Christ immediately responded. Verse 24, And Jesus went with him. What an assurance. He always does. If there's even a spark of real need and faith, he responds to your prayer. And Christ went with him. Well, then we come down to verse 35. There was uh, the uh, healing of the woman who touched him. And then when that was complete, in verse 35, as Christ yet spoke to that woman, behold of thy plague, there came the ruler of the, from the ruler of the synagogue's house Certain which said, thy daughter is dead. So once faith appeared, there suddenly came a tremendous setback. Your daughter is dead. That faith was put to the test. It's no good. It's too late. She's dead. Well, imagine the effect of that on a father. How crushed he would feel. How terrible he would feel. How sad. He'd just asked Christ and Christ was on his way. No good. It's over. She's dead. So a blow comes which strikes at his faith. And Christ says to him, don't be afraid. 
Don't fear anything. Don't fear that nothing can be done. Don't fear that you're now lost. Don't fear that your daughter is now finally dead. Don't fear all the scorn you'll get for continuing to come with me. Don't fear the laughter and the scorn and the derision when people see that I'm coming to heal her. Only believe. Hold on to your belief that Christ is God, that he came from heaven, that he died on Calvary for sinners like me, that I may come to him, that he will change me and save me. Hold on. Believe. Trust me. And that happens when anybody's seeking the Lord. There'll be a great setback. You can be sure of it. It'll come right into you. Yes, but I can't be saved. I've sinned too much. I've repudiated the Lord before. He won't hear me. He won't respond to me. And anyway... What would my friends and colleagues think? I can't do this. They will despise me. And if you're young, you may be in a position where the voice comes within you. What will my girlfriend say? What will my boyfriend say? They're against this. They laugh at this. They ridicule this. How can I go on? I can't give him up. I can't give her up. I must drop all this. There'll be a great setback, a problem. Something will come to undermine your faith. It's the enemy of souls. He's at work. He's trying to destroy your seeking and finding of Almighty God. You have to trust the Saviour. Trust the Word of God. Trust his word, trust his work on Calvary's cross and press forward. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. And then something happened, verse 37. He suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. No dignitaries, none of the uh, elevated friends of the ruler of the synagogue, all excluded at this point from making the journey. This is going to be a personal matter. There will be witnesses, we read in due course, but only five three of the disciples and the mother and the father. It is necessary for there to be witnesses, but there'll be the minimum number because this is a personal matter. This is the raising from the dead of a child and it depicts salvation. It's a personal matter. It's between you and the Lord. You can't go in a group to Christ you've got to go yourself in some quiet place pour out your heart to him in prayer ask him to save you 
Repent of your sin and he will work personally in your heart and no one will see what's happening. It's between you and the Lord. Verse 38, he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. Matthew adds that there was minstrels. Some people translate it pipers or flutes. Others, it is a debated translation, say, no, it's something repetitive in the Greek. Maybe it's chanting. Maybe there were lamentations being chanted by the professional mourners already there making a tremendous noise. And they crowded into the house. Would have been a big house. This is a wealthy man. Verse 39. And when he was come in, he saith unto them also, he excludes them. Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. But, Luke points out, and he was a physician, they knew she was dead. Yet Christ says, she is not dead, but sleepeth. That doesn't mean she isn't dead. She was dead all right. What Christ meant was this. She is not finally dead. She is not remainingly dead. I'm going to raise her from the dead. That's what he meant. She is not dead. This isn't final This isn't the end of the matter. And they were filled with derision. They laughed him to scorn, says our translation. And it is the best translation. The modern translations are not so literal. They all find some other way of saying it. The Greek is, they laughed him down, literally. And there's a hint in the Greek verb, which indicates that it was probably bursts of laughter. You know, a derisive, slow hand clap is a contrived thing. Well, they seem to have had a habit that if you wanted to laugh somebody to scorn, you would emit this cackle of laughter at intervals. <laughs> All the more derisory. It was so insulting. It was a contrived, artificial, laughing down to humiliate and reject. So they were excluded. Unbelief and scorn is excluded from the blessing. Nothing for them. But when he had put them all out, verse 40, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, presumably with the three selected disciples and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. Jairus was quite comfortably off. It wasn't a one-roomed house, which was the norm. There was a separate room for the girl, And verse 41, 
the Lord gives himself to the girl. He took the damsel by the hand. He didn't lay his hands on her or do what was expected, but he took her by the hand as though I take responsibility for you. I treat you as mine. I identify with you. That's a beautiful picture of salvation. For this instant, much better than the laying on of hands. He took the damsel by the hand. That's what Christ does. He comes himself and touches the heart and relates us to himself, just as he came himself from heaven to suffer and die, especially for repentant sinners who would trust him. So he took her by the hand, and he said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, and it's very elegantly put in our King James Version, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. What would you say today? The modern translation would be something like this. Little girl, get up. Just what a mother might say to a child in the morning, or a father. Bend over the child. Little girl, get up. Very kindly spoken. The Lord behaved just like a parent in those words. And he spoke to her. The call of Christ. Dead soul. Sinner. Come to me. And you come. And you trust him. And he changes you. He gives you life. Straightway. Straightway. That's a terrific word. The damsel arose and walked. Again, the translation is literal. The Greek word is just straight. Straightway, immediately, directly, without hesitation. If you come to Christ with a sincere heart and you repent of your sin and you feel your need and you believe in what he's done on Calvary and you give yourself to him and plead for salvation, then he saves you. And you'll soon see the evidence. And you'll soon realize it. Straightway. It's an immediate transaction. You've not long to wait. If he does keep you waiting at the door, it's because your repentance isn't real. You don't mean it with all your heart. There's something you've got tucked under your coat, which is sinful and wrong, and you think you can take it into the kingdom of heaven with you, and you can't. You've got to be realistic. That's the only reason why he may hesitate. Straightway, the little girl arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment 
and the people who were outside who'd laughed him to scorn. They were amazed at what had taken place. They knew she had been dead. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, though it got out soon enough and it was spread around. But the Lord himself damped down the spreading of information just for the time being because if he hadn't done the scribes and the Pharisees would have redoubled their attempts to seize him and to execute him before the time to which he was working when his execution would take place outside Jerusalem. But especially here, he commanded that something should be given her to eat. How interesting. He's raised her from the dead. And there's this little practical note. Give her something to eat. There's a lesson in that. Christ saves you. He gives you life. You have a new mind. You understand the things of God. You have a new nature. You have a new conscience. All departments of your being, your mind, your reasoning faculty, your heart, your affections, your will, your volitional aspect, all these things are changed. You love the Lord. You're still, you still have sin in you. But you long to be righteous. But listen to this. He saves you by grace. He saves you by a miracle. You contribute nothing. You put nothing in. But once you're saved, once you have a new life, once you walk with him and know him, you are given something to do. You are to cooperate with him and work with the Holy Spirit to resist your ongoing sin and to be made more righteous. So you pass from the entirely spiritual to something of the material, saved by a free gift, by a miracle of God, but sanctification, the ongoing Christian work, involves your efforts. And as you pray and make the effort to resist your sin, God helps you and gives you the power and the wherewithal. And that's all there in this wonderful word. He commanded that something should be given her to eat. Her having been raised from the dead didn't mean she'd never eat again. Her having been saved by grace alone doesn't mean that there isn't something for us to do in the ongoing Christian life by the help of Almighty God. That's the lesson of faith and conversion which is implicit in the healing of the daughter of Jairus. But as we come to conclusion, I'd like to just look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. Look at this. He went out from thence, from Capernaum, and travelled to his own country, which means Nazareth. Now he had made already a return trip to Nazareth. And you read all about it in Luke 
chapter 4. I won't turn to that now. And he preached in the synagogue. And really he announced himself as Messiah. And he read a long passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And he preached. And they hated it. And they resented it. And they were furious with him. And they, the mob got hold of him. And they kind of frog-marched him to the end of a great cliff. Nazareth was built on a hill. And there was a sharp slope at the edge of the town or the village. And they went to thrust him over the edge where he would perish. They wanted to kill him. And he just walked through the midst of them. And they couldn't take him. But he goes back there now. What happened on the revisit? A second opportunity for the people of Nazareth to turn to their Messiah. The first time, murderous rage. The second time, well, it seems to have changed into a kind of settled hostility. There was no attempt to take his life this time, but there wasn't much change in their unbelief. Verse 2, when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. This is marvellous. We've never heard such things. He's miles above the professional clergy. These things are wonderful. This, this man's a prophet. This is astonishing. No, 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 no. He's no prophet. He's one of us. Where did he get this? Where is there a school to teach this marvelous material? And all this detail. And how he knows his Bible, his scriptures, and the interpretation of them. But their prejudice and their unbelief had so gripped them, they were astonished, but they said, Whence hath this man these things? This man, where did he get this from? And what wisdom is this? It was wisdom, all right. But what is it that he has it, which is given unto him? that even such mighty works, they acknowledged they were miracles, they were healings, they were astonishing, wrought by his hands. But prejudice overcame reason. Unbelief overcame reasonableness. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, Joseph seems to have died by now, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters unnamed? They're all half-brothers and half-sisters, of course. And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. The Greek says, scandalized. Offended is a good translation. 
But that word scandal comes right from the Greek word. They were scandalized or offended at him. He's only one of us. And they were blinded. So the wonderful things they never saw. His divinity. They didn't see it. His holiness. It didn't register with them. The fact that he fulfilled all the prophecies. They swept it aside. His power, his miracles, they couldn't account for them. So they dismissed them. His compassion, they weren't interested. The teaching on redemption, it meant nothing to them. It was all lost on them. Are you an unbeliever? Or do you nurture unbelief? Unbelief takes away your intellect and your reason when it comes to spiritual things and you can't see the obvious. Unbelief is injurious. It's suicidal. They were signing their death warrant. They would not believe in Christ. They would be lost for all eternity. Unbelief is so unreasonable. Look at him. Hear his teaching. It's marvelous. See his miracles, his deportment. Ah, he's not, he's one of us. He can't be Messiah. What fueled that prejudice? Because he insisted on repentance and the taking away of sin. No, they said. When we have a Messiah, it will be a Messiah who makes us rich on earth, who throws out the Roman occupation, who gives us something to be proud of. We want the here and now. We want a saviour for material things. And for now, we don't want a saviour from sin. We don't want to give up our sin. We don't want one to take us to heaven. That was behind their prejudice, really. And so I must conclude. He marveled because of their unbelief. Chapter 6, verse 6. Doesn't mean the Saviour was taken by surprise. He knew everything that would happen. He was God as well as man. But in his human nature, he couldn't understand the unreasonableness of human unbelief. And what happened? He left. And he went about the villages teaching. He took his grace and his compassion and his salvation elsewhere. I do hope that for all of you, there'll be a great sense of need in your hearts. Perhaps it'll start with a physical need and a problem that cannot be solved. And it pulls you up short. 
And it brings you to think of what you're doing here and your relationship with God. Perhaps it'll go directly to your soul and you'll feel your need of God. And you'll take the steps. Faith will be born. You'll recognize Christ, who he is. You'll go to him. You'll be surrounded by people who'll scorn you. The devil will cast every conceivable doubt into your head. Be not afraid. Only believe. But if you give way to unbelief, see what happened to Nazareth. Unbelief clouded their judgment, blinded their view, caused them to reject the Savior, not once but twice. And he withdrew and took his salvation to other hearers. The last point that we saw in the raising of the daughter of Jairus was that straightway she got up and walked. There's an immediacy about all this. If there's a work of God in your heart at any level, act today, dear friends. Act soon. Don't leave it. You leave it, then unbelief will grow. And cynicism and coldness and indifference and the grace of God will go elsewhere.